What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fans. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. My name is Alex, and this is episode 32. What's new with you, Ryan? I finished finals last week, so that's been a relief. Now I'm just settling in for the summer break. Great to hear. So Ryan, this is part two of our conversation with the second in command of the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Norway, Tron Granda, on the topic of simplifying sovereign wealth funds. What did we talk about in part one? In part one, we talked about the basics of sovereign wealth funds, the purpose of Norway's sovereign wealth fund, their history, and much more. We'll be getting more into the investment philosophy, current events and challenges, and much more in this episode. Additionally, we just want to remind you that if you are learning from our episodes and want to keep supporting what we're doing, we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you're listening to this on another platform, as long as you have an Apple account or device, you can support us with the rating. Additionally, we'd love to know what feedback you have for us, so get in touch with us to send us any feedback to let us know how we're doing and what you'd like to see from us going forward. We'll be teasing the next guest at the end of part two. So, let's just get to simplifying. Welcome to Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins created by students that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. We're your hosts, Rohan and Alex. Yeah, I find it fascinating how not only do you have to factor in the component of choosing companies that have strong fundamentals and technicals to provide you those returns, but also having to balance that political aspect, which you mentioned, and making sure that you know other countries don't get the wrong idea of what you guys are setting out to do, which I think would be a great segue into kind of your approach to risk and sort of balancing all these different moving factors for, especially for a fund that's so large. So maybe you could talk about your approach to risk and kind of your philosophy on that for the fund. No, absolutely. So the first thing to say about how you approach risk is that if you don't have a target, in my case, at least, or in my opinion, at least, you, you don't have any risk because there's nothing that you can have a shortfall against, right? So it's important to know what your target is and then to assess the risks that you run in trying to achieve that target. So that's the first thing. And for us, it's really kind of simple. Highest possible long-term return, that's our target. We haven't got any explicit kind of percentage target because I think, again, that's sometimes dangerous because what happens when yields compress and you have a hunt for yield, you're typically in that scenario going out on the risk curve and running risks that you otherwise wouldn't be considering. So have your target clear. Second thing I would say is that there's no single measure that captures risk, all risk in a good way. So don't rely on models. Don't rely on your VAR calculation or your tracking error calculation. Make sure that you have multiple dimensions to your risk management. Have a competent risk department and that knows their stuff and that can challenge the portfolio managers and the investment side and top management in what the risks we run and have them equipped with the best technology and best data that they can have so that they can slice and dice the portfolio so that we can uncover whatever hidden risks that we, we're running and we're not cognizant of. Two more components to how we approach risk. What is it? The third component now in my list. I already talked about, you need to anchor as much as you can the risks that you're running, and then you need to communicate them. So what we're trying to do, and it's been a kind of a difficult exercise the last 10 years really, is to say that, yes, good results, especially since the financial crisis. Everything's kind of gone up in a straight line, more or less, for various reasons. 
but you know nothing grows into the sky so we're trying to say at every quarterly reporting meeting and every press conference that you know we need to be prepared we are running risks and you shouldn't be surprised if the uh, fund falls in value significantly over a short period of time that's what you're being compensated for you know it's easy to say that you're a long-term investor what you're really saying is that you can tolerate short-term swings right you know from going back to my former employee you could think about pension money and insurance money as being long-term but very often you get you know you're running risks that you kind of wasn't prepared to take and once the market turn against you you're doing all these stupid at least in hindsight decisions of cutting your risk when you have you've lost uh, a lot right and we're trying to do the opposite really we, and we have actually a, a mechanism to, to prove that. We have a rebalancing mechanism that we're very, very proud of and that we stick to. And it says that, you know, whenever the markets drag the equity share above a certain threshold, we will be, be selling. We will automatically be selling. And vice versa, if the markets drop below a certain threshold, we will be buying. Uh, and we do that. And the, the latter part is the hardest part, actually, to, you know, when things look dark and everybody's pessimistic, that's when you the risk premiums are highest. That's when you should be buying. So we're trying to do exactly the opposite. And, and it's been working pretty well so far. So to sum it up, have your target. Make sure you have a proper risk department that can slice and dice and don't rely on one single measure. Anchor the risk taking and communicate what you're doing. Awesome. That's great. And that's really great advice, I guess, for just any investor. Um institutional or not to properly manage their level of tolerance for what they can lose and what they can gain. So kind of building upon this whole topic of risk though, I'd love to get into like talking about the liquidity within the fund. You mentioned earlier, like the Norway fund is 70% concentrated in equities, but then you also mentioned that you're starting to invest in renewable energy infrastructure. I've also read that you guys have real estate in your portfolio as well. So how do you view and balance liquidity between assets within the fund? And you can tie it into what you mentioned with your risk analysis. Yeah, sure. So this fund is really highly liquid and it's maybe uh, a little bit strange since we are such a long-term investor. Um, normally you would get compensated for taking liquidity risk. So why is why are we the way we are? And it's not so much to do about liquidity. We need some sort of liquidity when we're rebalancing and those kind of things, but that's more than manageable within the natural liquidity of the portfolio. You know, you have the coupons and the maturities on the bond portfolio that provides the natural liquidity in the portfolio. So we can handle that. So the reason why we're so li liquid is that helps transparency in the sense that, you know, there's a market that prices your assets and the market is, you know, to put it simply, the market is always right. So you have the right price on your assets. It's very transparent. It's quoted on a, on a stock exchange or, you know, a bond is, is, is traded. So that's the reason why we have the composition that we have and that we have quite low allocation to less liquid and then more, should we call them, less transparent assets. Um, it's really about this point about transparency and, and trust in in you know the reporting we do the results we create and so forth but arguably you know an investor like the norwegian sovereign wealth fund could easily stomach more liquidity risk but then it becomes a little bit more opaque for the, the general public yeah that's fantastic and i think from the beginning you, you've done a great job at sort of outlining norway's wealth fund and your line of thinking and so i'd really like to get into 
sovereign wealth funds today and, and you know maybe some of the current issues that you guys are facing or, or that you see on the horizon and the first of which is you know sort of over the last decade it seems like opportunities to generate alpha have definitely become a little bit more limited i think within private equity public equities for a longer time there's just a lot lot more investors and the opportunities obviously are not growing as fast to match the number of investors pursuing them so what are your thoughts on sort of this competition within within these industries and you know competing with other institutional investors do you still see a lot of opportunity to generate alpha do you see opportunities becoming more crowded what are your thoughts on that I would say, I think what's important, and that's really been important for us as well, is that, well, our starting point is that markets, at least the markets that we invest in, are generally pretty efficient. So it's hard to beat the market, right? It's hard to be creating alpha. So that's our starting point. It's difficult. And, you know, the other side of that is that the average investor earns the average return. That's kind of, by definition, the market, right? However, if you are cognizant of what type of investor you are, i.e. that you're not the average investor, that you have some sort of distinguishing features, some developed capabilities, then you could start to see how you could exploit that in, in the marketplace. So we're very cognizant that we, we, we run a few, well, quite a few, actually, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, quite a few different strategies within the risk limits that we have to try and eke out some alpha, some excess return. But the common denominator of them is that the kind of the starting point is that, you know, why should we be earning money on this, right? And you, you should be able to tie it back to your process or who you are. So what are our distinguishing features? Well, there's some very obvious ones. We're large. That is normally, maybe, at least for some strategies, not an advantage, right? You're the elephant in the glass room and you will crush things if you start to move. But in some places and some situations, it's actually a good thing to be large. I mean, you can commit, you have, you know, this this certainty of capital, if you want to call it that, that you can actually, you don't have to call your bank or extend your credit line to, to do an investment. We have all the cash. So it's, it's a one-stop shop for anyone who wants to do large deals. And that's what we're taking advantage of in the real estate space. We're buying, you know, with partners, we're buying full streets or partial streets or full quarters or a full skyscraper. And there's not that many competing in that space. The other thing is that we're long-term. Even though the portfolio is liquid, we don't have this short-term liquidity needs. So we can actually run strategies and, and sit with them as they you know, go sour because we know that they will turn around and we don't not stopped out and we don't have to you know, liquidate positions. So we're playing that to, to our advantage. So I think that's, you know, to, to, to sum it up, know who you are, know what your differences are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, so you don't try to do anything stupid because these are fiercely competitive markets. And I, I would, you know, probably subscribe to your description that, you know, alpha is, is increasingly harder to, uh, to eke out, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And to sort of change the topic a little bit, you know, you mentioned earlier that, Really, the Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund gets capital from excess profits from from oil sales in Norway on on sort of one shelf. And so I'm curious to know what happens when oil prices are heavily discounted because it is a commodity. It's traded. You know, the price fluctuates quite a bit. And, you know, maybe you could talk about how the fund fared during the pandemic where in April 2020, crude oil prices were actually negative for a short period of time. How do you deal with these short term fluctuations? Yeah, so this really goes to whether or not there are 
inflows or outflows to the fund. So whenever whenever there is yeah, a surplus, i.e. production is high and prices are high, you would typically have more money coming directly to the government than they would spend to balance their budget. And then hence, that would be an inflow to our fund. If the opposite happens, as, as happened last year, as you said, and also in the fall of 2014-2015, when oil prices fell dramatically, that income stream to the government becomes less, and then hence it's reversed, i.e. they take money out of the fund. But this is just really on the margin. I mean, even last year with the pandemic hitting and Norway, like many other countries, did a lot of extraordinary measures to, to counter those effects, and they took money out of the fund. It's still to the tune of two, three percent of the fund is not really dramatic in in any shape or form. So we're not really that kind of influenced by the fluctuation of the oil price over time. Of course, it will mean a lot for the Norwegian economy because, you know, low low prices will mean low income. But for us as the fund, we're we're kind of, and that's how it's set up, we're kind of shielded a little bit from that. It just reverses some of the, what would normally be an inflow to an outflow, but it's not really dramatic at all. And to say a little bit more specific about when the pandemic hit, you saw a sharp decline in, in equity prices as well, and you saw the oil price go down and everything really going down. What happened then is that this rebalancing mechanism hit, right? So we were actually in April last year buying equities as they fall 20, 30, 40%. Uh, but the rebound was so sharp that we, we didn't really get to buy that much. But you know, that gives you an idea of how kind of insulated and how we are actually playing our distinguishing feature, our long-termness in those kind of market situations, we can actually be very uh, counter-cyclical or do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. So many people have pointed to this feature and said that sovereign wealth funds, to the extent that they are behaving like this, is actually a stabilizing factor in the financial markets because they typically don't liquidate their positions uh, when everybody else is doing, and sometimes they do the opposite. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think it's well taken. And sort of staying with this line of the pandemic, I think really to deal with the pandemic, nearly every country has had to lower interest rates to near zero, or even we've seen negative interest rates. So within this sort of zero and negative interest rate environment, how has that changed your paradigm? And maybe you can talk about this a little bit more broadly, you know, as the investing or the economic paradigms change. How does Norway sort of adjust their investing philosophy and what sort of outlook are you taking when you're making investment decisions? Yeah, so this really goes to the big asset allocation decision, I think. And also, you know, as you say, your expected returns going forward. We typically do a very traditional, simple method of building up, you know, from the risk-free assets and and some term structure on the the interest rates, if there is is one still, and then add to that an expected equity risk premium. Of course, that's really hard to, you know, make a point estimate on, but but still you can do some scenarios. And that kind of gives you the the expected long-term return that we have. And currently, you know, we don't we're not revising that on a frequent basis. The last time we kind of did an official estimate was when we went from 67 to 70% equities. And then we said, you know, holding 70% equities in global markets with zero to very low interest rates should give you a portfolio that yields over time close to 3% on an annual basis. And so that is also the basis for how much the government says that they should be spending of the fund is that 3%. And the whole idea behind that is that if you're earning 3% over time and you're not spending more than 3% every year, then you have a permanent fund. 
one, you have a fund for future generations. You're not depleting the principal. You're just using the, the returns that you're harvesting. So zero or close to zero interest rates just means that, you know, the starting point is lower. And hence, we've also in Norway, we lowered our expectations and we lowered our usage of the fund. That hasn't been that difficult because the fund has grown, even though the expectations have fallen the and maybe they have fallen because the returns have been so good historically as well. But but it hasn't been a problem really to lower the expectation and also at the same time lower the, the spending that we're doing on an annual basis. That's great. And so when you talk kind of about, you know, meeting these expectations or in your guys' case, the 3% return target, what are your kind of contingencies for if you fail to meet that target? Clearly as a pension fund, at least publicly, like you stated, I'm sure there's a lot of, I guess, pressure to meet those return targets to stay on track. So what kind of is the plan B, so to speak, for when that doesn't happen? Yeah, the short answer to that is that there is no plan B, but let me be a little bit more elaborate. So just before we move on, 3% is, is in real terms. So that is netto inflation and a small cost that we have on running the fund. So in nominal terms, it's more like five-ish percent. But that is a kind of an average long-term expectation. So, you know, again, going back to my point, you're saying you're a long-term investor, which just means that you can stomach short-term fluctuations. So if you have a bad year, there's no cry out that, you know, now we can't spend what we said that we will spend. As long as you don't shift your long-term expectation, we will spend the expected return. So it doesn't really have a short-term impact on anything we do, really. We're kind of just looking through that as kind of part of the game and part of the noise. So there's no pressure. I mean, if you have a bad year, it's no kind of let's up the risk or do something different or whatever. It's just a part of the game of saying that you're long-term. Yeah, really that simple. Yeah. Would you consider that philosophy unique to Norway or is that something that you see other wealth funds doing? Or yeah, like, do you think that that's unique to you guys? Not totally unique, but I think since we have 25 years now history and we've kind of lived through one big crisis and a couple of smaller crises, and, and kind of the governance model has held up. We haven't done big changes to anything just because of a bad result. I think that kind of proves that you know we have anchored what we do people are patient they can tolerate losses i think probably we're a little bit unique in that regard i mean it's healthy to have a debate when things go bad i mean you can learn a lot but it stays as a debate and it not necessarily changes you know your fundamental views that is important and probably a little bit unique to how we have been able to operate at least so far definitely that's great. And so I think this would be a good time to sort of transition into, you know, some of the future of sovereign wealth funds and, you know, like the long-term problems, challenges, and outlook that you could see for the Norway fund and, you know, for wealth funds in general. So to start off, I think we could start with the sort of elephant in the room question, which would be, you know, what happens when Norway runs out of oil? Clearly, as you mentioned, like the oil and gas sales do comprise the majority or all of your capital raising for the fund. So, you know, that time, that set date later down in the future when there's no more oil left, you know, what happens to the fund? What's the next step? Yeah. So that's a good question. I mean, the idea now is to set aside, right? We've had, I don't know if you had peak oil, maybe you had, you know, at least in pricing terms, I could be wrong, at least in production we have in Norway. So it is on the down. But we put aside a lot, right? And we're trying not to spend more than we earn in returns. And if we manage to stick to that, we will have a permanent fund. 
I mean, it will be there and it's not going anywhere, even if the oil revenues is falling. I mean, it all depends on how much government spending there is, right? So if that is is held up and increasing, then obviously over time you will start to deplete the principle of the fund as well. But there's no drama in that, really. I mean, if you take the really long-term perspective, I mean, this fund is for for smoothing out over generations, right? And if, if you get to a point where five, six generations from now, they actually need to, to start using the fund because their economy is in a shape that is necessary, then of course they will spend it. I mean, it's not that it, it's, it's a target in itself to have a, a fund that is, you know, here forever and ever. You know, it's a smoothing mechanism in, in many ways over, over multiple generations. So it's expected that there will be at some point no oil income because it is a non-renewable asset. If you take the long view, I mean, this is something to expect. But, you know, as long as we get some returns and we don't uh, overspend, you know, you have a pretty permanent fund. Okay. That's great to know that kind of perspective that you have for that very long-term date. But in the interim, as what you mentioned, the oil profits or oil revenues dwindling a little bit, do you guys have any alternative sources for capital raising to supplement that? Or is it kind of just leave it to the oil to take care of capital? Yeah, it, it, that's the construction in Norway. It, it used to be called the oil fund, right? Just because it, the basis of the fund is the excess oil, oil income. So there's no contingency or any plans. You know, It's not as if we're dependent on future inflows to the fund. I mean, the fund, again, going back to my, my argument, as long as we're not spending more than we're earning in returns, it will be a permanent fund. And so if there's no new funds coming in, there's no drama to that. And if some funds go out a little bit in the meantime, there's no drama to that either. So it's really kind of the, I sound very relaxed here now, but that's the way we are as well. I mean, there's no need for new capital into the fund. I mean, it will be the size that it is. If there's a surplus, there will be funds coming in. And if the returns are good, the fund will still continue to grow by that mechanism. But if it's the other way around, then the fund becomes smaller. And, you know, it's obviously a little bit of a problem for future governments to, that they don't have that much room on their budgets to kind of decide on. But, but apart from that, I mean, that's the situation of every other nation that you need to prioritize how you spend your resources, right? Yeah, and I think the the proof is definitely there for Norway. I think you are the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world with over one trillion in, in assets. So I think you guys are doing quite well for now. So it should be interesting to see what the future holds. My final question, and this is the final question that we ask all of our guests, is you know, with all our guests with children, we want to know, knowing what you know now about sovereign wealth funds and finance and investing, what lessons do you have? What wallets have you given to your children about the world of money? And would you recommend the same for students today? Yeah, well, I think that some of the things that we talked about in this podcast, you know, having respect for uh, the markets, knowing who you are, that there's no kind of quick ways of making money. Uh, You should be trying to save something, but you need to be cognizant of what risks you're running so that you're not forced to change anything when something unforeseen happens. You know, all those kind of basic stuff that, you know, try to save a little bit, run some risks if you have the stomach for it or the perspective, either long-termness, and expect to have some bumps on the road. I mean, that's what the world is, right? It's news coming in and things happening that we didn't foresee. So expect a little bit of a bumper ride, but stay with your targets and you'll probably be fine over the long run. Yeah. And and with that, I think 
our podcast is over. Thank you so much, Mr. Grande, for, for taking the time to, to come on and, and sharing your wisdom. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. That was the end of part two of our two-part interview with Tron Grande on simplifying sovereign wealth funds. We hope you enjoyed and learned more about sovereign wealth funds from him. The entire conversation was amazing. Ryan, what were some of the key takeaways from the second part? I thought it was interesting to hear about the fund's idea of taking a non-uniform approach to risk. When you have such an important role, you always have to be adjusting. Well said. Granda also explained very well the reason for the portfolio being so liquid. It's so that the citizens of Norway can understand exactly how their country's assets are faring. Agreed. I also like Granda's answer to the question about the inevitable absence of oil in Norway. Ultimately, the fund will do its best to generate returns, and then the rest will come down to fiscal policy. Exactly. Well, Ryan, that wraps up our part two conversation and takeaways. Thanks for filling in for Rohan again, and we hope to have you on as a co-host in future episodes. My pleasure. Always happy to talk about finance and get great insight from an awesome guest. And now it's time for us to tease the next episode's guest. Remember, the first person who sends a message with the correct guest will get a shout out in the next episode. So here are the two hints for our next guest. Number one, he's currently the head of one of the largest university endowments. And number two, He's worked with the late David Swenson with the Yale Endowment. The next episode will be out on July 1st, so we'll talk to you all then. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Tron Grand for his insights today. I hope you understand the topic of sovereign wealth funds in a more simplified way. This episode was produced by the incredible Jeffrey Lee. I also want to thank Ryan Sue and Alex Patel for doing such an incredible job while I was out. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.